This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they've faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we're speaking with Bryony Kennedy, founder and CEO of Adorn Cosmetics. Adorn is an all-natural skincare and makeup brand which aims to nourish and nurture the well-being of your skin whilst protecting the planet. In the episode, you'll hear all about Bryony's journeys she built it from the ground up. She discusses the challenges she overcame in the early days, the reason why her business took off overnight, and why consumers love to see a face behind a brand. Let's jump in. Bryony, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. You are the founder and the CEO of Adorn Cosmetics. Tell us about your personal journey and the early stages of your career. Oh, okay. So my background's quite a diverse one. And really, in a nutshell, I've experienced quite a different array of roles prior to starting Adorn. I mean, I've worked in the car industry, the gym industry. I've worked in engineering or even a solarium at one point in time there. I've worked with animals. So a real very, very varying background. But for me, I suppose my journey was one that it was a passion, I suppose, meets what can I do with that? And I'd been working at this point in the car industry for quite a long time. And alongside that, I was also doing makeup artistry and also brow sculpting. It was just something that I enjoyed doing, I guess, from an artistic point of view. And they just got to a point where I was really bored one day when I was at work and I just managed to see an ad for a beauty salon that was up for sale. And I thought, oh, maybe I might be able to buy my own business and do my own thing. And so jumping out of car sales into beauty was probably not the most ideal assumption, but it was one that really set the path for me as to where I am today. And so I purchased that beauty salon and it really was a nail bar at the time. And I don't have a beauty background through education, but it's very much self-taught. And so with that particular salon, I wanted to build on that so that I could guarantee my cash flow. And so for me, one of the things I found having a beauty salon is that the customers are not always particularly loyal because there's so many of them around. A lot of money goes on wages and not necessarily those wages being fulfilled by services because if people cancel or they're late. And so what I decided to do at that point was set up a membership program, very much like a gym membership for the salon. And so people would preset the amount of money that they wanted to spend each month. And so, for example, someone who might get their nails done every month knows they're going to spend $60. And so they would set their prepay membership to say $55 or $60, let's say, and that would come out of their bank account as a direct debit each month. Now, what that would mean is that they would get their services 
I think it was 15% cheaper at that point. So any extra money that they didn't spend, they would use as a bit of a buffer to treat themselves in a few months' time for, say, a different treatment. So often customers would set their membership a lot higher than what they knew. It's almost like lay-buying your beauty services. But the beauty for me was I knew what my cash flow was. I hate that saying, but cash flow is king. And it's really knowing where you are at every stage of your business, of your week, of your day, and how you're able to pay for things. One of the things which I'll talk about more so with Adorn was, you know, understanding cash flow and the difference between profit and loss. And I think people get confused between those two things. They think they're the same and they're not. So that was one great thing for me was that I knew my cash flow and also I was able to sell that business very easily when I had had enough of it because I knew that I could quantify and also qualify that the business wasn't really just built on me. It was built on the other staff members there and there was a set amount of money coming in each week. It was very easy for me to prove. Whilst I was there, I got a drop in from a rep as you do. And this particular person was a rep for a mineral kind of brand or a manufacturer. And they, I guess at the time, were trying to find salons that wanted their own products. And I was already in the mindset that I was probably going to sell the business. So I thought, oh yeah, not really interested. I don't really get it. I wasn't really into mineral makeup back then. I had 15 years ago, I had no idea what these colored powders were of kind of traditional makeup artists sort of thought this, I don't get how that can even stick to your face, but I kept the card. I don't know why at the time, but I just sort of, there was something in me that kept that business card. And so fast forward a little bit, I decided to sell the salon and then found out a week after I'd sold it to the first person that looked at it, that I was pregnant. And so that worked out quite well because I was really ill and had found out that I was having twins. Wow, twins. That would have been a shock at the time. Was that a shock? It was a shock, but it was kind of amusing because I've got younger twin sisters and so does my husband. Ah. So it was the end of the day, it kind of was like, wow, okay, this is just too weird that we just laughed it off. But (laughs) I was incredibly ill. So it was lucky that I sold the salon and then obviously the boys were born. And then about six months After they were born, I was starting to get a little bit, I suppose, itchy feet, I suppose, and really wanted to do something for myself. I'm one of these people that's just a born entrepreneur. I had my first business when I was about 11 or 12. I've always done things to earn money right from when primary school, high school, and I've always been very clever with that. And so it was just something that's in me. So around the age of them being six months, I thought, what am I going to do? But also be able to stay home and be flexible. And I remembered that I had that business card from that manufacturer, but I kind of wasn't sure what I could do with that. I guess I didn't have the confidence at that point to do anything. So What I did decide to do was teach makeup classes in people's homes. I just thought, I knew when I had the salon, a lot of people asked me how I do my makeup, can I teach them? Just basic, how do I get the right foundation colour? And often what the struggles were was just getting the right colours. And that's what was often making people's makeup not look great, not so much their technique, the wrong colours. So I thought I'll teach these classes in people's homes. I won't charge them for it, but I will sell a particular product. There was a networking marketing product at the time that I was selling. And so the classes were something that went off really well and people loved it. They received it well. They just enjoyed the fact that someone was taking the time to show them what to do. And then after doing that, I thought, well, hang on a minute, I could be making more money than this little bit of percentage I'm earning. Maybe I should just do my own products. I know that 
I can sell them. I've got this method that's working. So how can I increase my actual revenue because I'm not charging for the classes? So there's value add for the customer, but there's got to be a bit more value add for me. And that's where my journey began starting at developing my own products where the whole Adorn concept began. And it really was just a small-ish range, still quite large for someone that just started out. In hindsight, probably too many SKUs. If I look back, I probably should have started a little bit smaller because it really kept my cash flow very lean because I did start with a larger range. But on the flip side of that, it was kind of a positive having a larger range too, because there wasn't that many natural brands that had as many SKUs as I did. So that was really good because I got to test market, I suppose, how I was going to sell the products. And then I had an opportunity, a captive audience to actually let me know firsthand whether these products were going to be any good, something that they wanted and were going to continue to buy. So it really was just, excuse the pun, an organic progression in that way, but it worked really well. And it worked in such a way that I wasn't overcapitalizing on putting too much money into something, it kind of, in my mindset, was a little bit of a hobby just to get me by so that I could continue to stay at home with the boys. Over time, it just got to the point where people were then calling me for orders and I couldn't keep taking calls, I couldn't keep taking classes. And so then the whole concept of looking at a website started. What year was that? What year was the website when you started looking at the website? So it was about 2008, so quite a while ago now, really the site, I might have started looking at website ideas, would have had to have been about six months later, I guess. That was with great trepidation because I really had no idea about what was involved with a website. That was just, whoa, you know, wow, out of my realm of understanding. But also what was of concern, I suppose, for me was that who's going to buy beauty products on a website? Because back then you just didn't, like no one sold colour products specifically and even skincare was lagging at that point. We were talking 13 years ago, aren't we now? So that was like, oh, is this going to work? But I guess sometimes what you're almost forced into is sometimes not a bad thing because I had no options around going into stores because I just didn't have the capital to do that. I didn't have the capital to supply enough stock and I didn't have enough capital to supply beautiful designed boards and any sort of platforms and things like that that I could display the products in. So it really was a position where I was forced into looking creatively at how I could sell these products and the website was the option for me. And so after trialing a few different types of backends, you know, I eventually got to the one that we're using at the moment, but a lot of money went into trial and error with different platforms that were going to be able to not only sell the product, but do it in a way that made sense for our brand. And initially, I also went down the path of looking at Adorn being a network marketing company because yep. clearly that's how I started the brand. I thought, well, that makes sense. We'll just get lots of brinies out there teaching classes. And unfortunately, or fortunately maybe, there wasn't that many brinies out there that were able to sort of replicate the way I did things. And so I also found that a little bit exhausting, I have to be honest, trying to manage and really encourage people to have that same energy level that I've got. And so I thought, you know what, let's put my energy level into a website and have all of that collective information there, tutorials, all of the information about the products and let's go from there. And it's been a massive learning curve because as I said at the beginning, 
the website was just something that most people were not comfortable with. That's where I looked at samples. So samples were something that we initially started out with to really help promote the brand. And that was something that we sold through the site. So people had that opportunity to try, touch, feel, smell and see how that product would work for them before committing to a a full size. I want to ask a few questions on some of the stuff that you talked about. You obviously started the business from scratch. But before we get to Adorn, I just want to touch on the membership program. That sounds like something that was very early to market. Was anyone doing that at the time when you ran the beauty salon? Not that I'm aware of, no. To this day, I've never heard of anyone doing that. For me, I'm just someone that can think very creatively around how to make money. And that was just something to me that I knew selling a small, and I knew I wasn't going to be doing this business for a long time. So I guess I was looking at my exit strategy. I knew I could only grow it so much unless I franchised it or opened up more. And learning what I did about the beauty salons, it's so competitive. And I just thought it was just not my thing. But what I did need to keep going was cash flow. And I also knew that selling a small business is really difficult because they want proof that these customers are loyal. And how do you prove loyalty through a service-based business? Yes, you can do that through the books, but are they new? Are they existing? How long have they been there? Are they going to swap if those employees leave because they've got a relationship with them? Are they really buying the business or the employees that those customers like? So, that's where I thought if I can prove cash flow coming in as a membership, that's loyalty, but it's also set cash flow that they know they're buying into and knowing that it's not me necessarily that the business relies on. And so it look, it worked really, really well. I mean, I was quite surprised to be honest, because I guess like anything, you have a little bit of self-doubt in your own ability sometimes. And I thought, well, maybe people don't like us as much as I think they do. Will they really want to do this membership program? But they did. They loved that lay-by, I suppose, aspect of it. And they liked being able to set aside, I guess, from their point of view, budgeting for their beauty. And they could really look at, okay, well, I know I spend 60, but if I put $80 into my membership, each month, you know, maybe in six months, I can afford a facial. That's how it was encouraged. And it worked really, really well. Yeah, I think that was a really clever idea, very innovative thinking. And I know you are an innovative thinker. And even starting a website in 2008 is very, very early. I wouldn't have thought there would have been too many cosmetic brands solely online. Again, a very brave choice. And one that obviously you did with some strategy behind it. But again, you were early. And I want to talk about some challenges in those early stages. What were some of the biggest challenges you had early in 2008 when the website went on and how did you overcome those challenges? There's probably three. One, I was learning on the job, really. I was an apprenticeship in my own business. I had the idea, I knew it would work, but it was really based on my gut and some obviously test marketing, I suppose, but a lot of it was unknown to me. You know, I didn't understand retail. I don't didn't understand websites. There was all these different things. And also to, you know, the parameters around selling a beauty product. What are the legislations around that? All of that sort of stuff. Then there was cash flow. You know, obviously that's a challenge for most people, possibly on an ongoing basis. And the third definitely was navigating the IT side of things. So the learning on the job is something that 
I confidently do even to this day. I'm someone that really embraces just getting in there and getting on with it. My approach, which is probably maybe different to some people where they really want to investigate, educate, and then test before they do anything. I'm not that person. Here's the idea. I'm going to run with it. And if it doesn't work, well, then we'll just move on to the next thing. Because my thing is around time, you know, you can spend all this time educating yourself and then you've possibly missed the bar or you've missed the opportunity where, okay, I might have it make an expensive mistake, but I've made it in a snapshot of a time compared to someone who maybe has taken six months, 12 months or whatever. So that's just my personality fit. Whilst it's a challenge, I embrace that challenge. So I'm just constantly looking at, okay, what else do I need to know about my industry? How do I further my knowledge in this? So that's something that you need to be constantly looking at ways to better yourself be ahead of the game. You don't have to reinvent the wheel, but it's like making sure your wheel works the best. And so that's something you've got to invest in. And yes, it's challenging, but it should also be interesting if you're doing the right or you're involved in the right business. You should find that enjoyable. The cash flow challenge, a few things there, I guess, is that I didn't have any support initially financially, obviously, aside from husband. (laughs) As the years progressed, I did have family support. In particular, my stepfather helped me out substantially. But initially, it was me and my husband. And it was what in every little penny that we had, we put into the business to buy stock or pay for something. And it was such a slow process of dollar in and almost a dollar fifty out. Like it was really <laughs> a lot of money being put back into the business. And so much so for us. And I get everybody's got to really evaluate their personalities and their risk levels and how they manage stress. And I'm someone cautious, but I'm also someone who can actually take on greater risk than others could, and I can stomach that quite well. So for us, we decided to sell our assets that we had at the time, which was our home. We subdivided that, built another house, reinvested all of that into the business and went into the rental market. And so for us, the cash flow was really about managing. I had a spreadsheet that I looked at almost two or three times a day just to make sure that I had enough money to pay for the next day. Like for so many years, we were living day by day by day. And even to the point that my husband had to call on extra annual leave, he had to take his long service leave and any money that we could get to put into the business, we put into it. And I even set up a little home salon in one of the rooms in our house. And one of the days a week, I would do eyebrow waxing, bikini waxing, (laughs) you name it. I did it just to get some money to come in to help, you know, obviously we have to survive. So anything we could do, even dog sitting. So we used to have people that would drop their dogs over and when they're on holidays, one lady used to drop her dog off every day and she paid us to babysit him every day. So whatever we could do to make money, we were doing it. So dog sitting, cat sitting, waxing, like you name it. And so that was really how we got by. And it was a struggle. I'm not going to lie. Like we really, really had a huge amount of stress on our hands every day, hoping, oh, look, 
we make a couple of sales because, you know, we need to pay the rent or we need to pay for food. So it was a monumental amount of stress. And one or two of the mistakes I probably made initially was thinking that if I bought more stock, that hell-bent on getting my margins looking really awesome by buying more units of something. And then at the end of the day, that's just swallowing up your cash flow. And so one of my tips would be when you're starting out is don't get too caught up in your initial margins. You want to know what the potential of that will be, but don't get too caught up in your initial margins unless you've got support and backing or angel investors or whatever, that's different. But if you're doing it yourself and you're scrounging for money like I was, don't be tempted to buy a thousand units of something just to get a better unit price. And then you've stuffed your cash flow because you're much better to be making a dollar a product than have it outlaid for a thousand units that maybe you don't even sell. Maybe that's a year's worth of stock at this point of time. So That was probably one of the mistakes I figured out that I was making early on, that I was just trying to invest in too much stock at one point in time. And probably also my range. Again, I said that at the beginning, I think my range could have been a little bit smaller so that I wasn't spreading my money across so many different product types. So it was all very exciting and I just wanted to have everything and I wanted to have it all now. But in hindsight, yes, I probably should have started with a slightly smaller range just to make it more palatable from a cash flow point of view. And definitely my tip is to have a spreadsheet. If you don't understand accounting and hopefully someone's and as amazing accountant as you. Oh, thank, Savar, you. thank you so uh, much, Bryony. Oh, because look, honestly, since, since you guys, things have just like you, I just love that you work with the business. And that is so important that whoever you bring on board your brand, whether it's your accountant, your bookkeeper, or any of your employees, they have to be on board with what you're trying to achieve. And an accountant definitely more so than anything, because if they don't understand what you're trying to achieve, they can really hold you back. And so for me, if you don't understand what your accountant's doing, at least have a good relationship with them, but at least understand cash flow management and have a good spreadsheet with that and know exactly what money's going in and what money's going out. For me, I got confused very early on with profit. And so when my accountant at the time was saying, okay, well, you made X amount of profit or you made X amount loss. I'm like, but my cash flow, like how? Like I don't get, how have I got all this extra money profit, but I I don't have any money. Like I don't know, where's this profit coming? I didn't understand that your interest payments and your payments towards things like your cars and things like that, like things that are not actual expenses per se, they come off your balance sheet. It's, yeah. it's So for me, I got confused with all of that. And so I would suggest that if there's anything anyone learns, it's understanding cash flow, what that involves and what profit and loss involves because they are two very different things and then understanding what comes off your balance sheet. So the third thing that I said was a bit of a challenge and still is to this day <laughs> is the website. Oh, oh God, shoot me now. Honestly, <laughs> like if anyone thinks throwing together a website's an easy option, oh, come and have a coffee with me. It is just as stressful as running a shop and worrying about customers coming through the doors. In some ways, I think it's actually a lot harder. It's not an easy thing just to put together because, as I said, you've got to look at what is going to be 
the right support for your product. It's a little bit like when you're building a house. What foundation do you need based on the earth that's going on? Like it's not going to necessarily, is it going to weather the storm? You know, you don't want to put a flimsy house in a cyclone area. The same with your website. You really need to know that it's robust enough to handle not only your products, the type of products you've got, but the way you're going to sell them. Do you want to sell them in bundles or sets or do you want Mm. customers to have options of colours? And so some sites won't do that. And unfortunately, what I've found is that a lot of these developers, and thank goodness I've finally, after 13 years, found a good one, and that's really sad to say, you've got to do your own due diligence because from my experience, and I know there's going to be some IT developers wanting to slip my throat right now, but they don't tell you, like, you don't know what you don't know. And they just, sometimes my experience is that they just do what you tell them to do, but what you're asking them to do may not be the best option or even the right option. You really need to understand very, very clearly what you need that site to do because you will get only what you ask for. And I know too many stories of people that have just spent so much of their hard-earned money into a site that's not functional, doesn't work. For example, one site that I had built for me and I had one staff member at the time, so it's not like I was, you know, we we're doing our bookkeeping every day or, or even sort of checking bank balances every day either. And the week after this particular launch, why is the money not going in the bank? Well, oh, my God. Oh, no. This new site from some supposed reputable person was taking orders but not charging people. Oh, no. But was giving us receipts to say that it had been. For a week. Wow. And at that point, we were on the bare, I mean, well, who am bones. I kidding? I was on the bare bones of my backside for about 10 years. So it's really only the last five years, really. But that was enough to break me. I'm like, I cannot even. So these are the kinds of things that can go wrong. And so do not be blind by what's going on with your site. And I do really think that if you've found someone, ask who their customers are and bloody call them and ask them, what was your experience with these people? Did they stay on budget? Were they supportive? What happened when things went wrong? It is a challenge even to this day. And so I just really can't stress that enough. So I wanted to talk about when the business went well, because you have an amazing story. There was a moment in the evening And then you woke up the next morning and the orders started coming through. Tell us what happened there and then how the business grew from there and what did you do thereafter? I still think my husband puffs his chest out and gloats about this to this day because (laughs) he still puts this down to it all being his reasons that this all came to fruition. And if I'm honest, yes, it is. So when I started Adorn, I really wasn't wanting the brand to be about me. And I guess it's a little bit of that imposter syndrome. You just think, well, 13 years ago, I'm, I don't have the money for Vogue-inspired photography and I can't afford to go in magazines. And I just thought, I'm the only one I can afford, but at the same time, like, no, God, no one's going to want to look at me. I'm not Elle McPherson or, you know what I mean? Like it was very much, oh, no, I just want the products to sell themselves. So I was very removed from that aspect. There were times where I would do some photography just to save money, but my husband always was saying people like listening to you. That's why the classes were successful. They like talking to you. They really take on board what you say. You've got that gift. Why aren't you 
teaching people like online or do the tutorials or he said you need to put your face and your story more to the brand rather than relying on the products to do it for you because our products are so highly accredited and one of the most accredited of an Australian-made brand that I really felt that all of that should sell the product itself and the fact that the products are amazing. So there was some really, really tough, probably a good year or two that were getting tougher and tougher and tougher and to the point that we had family buying our food each week. It was getting that bad, extremely stressful. Then my husband sort of mentioned that again. He said, why can't you put your face to the brand? And at this point of the conversation, he was also looking at taking on another job. And I was even contemplating picking and packing shelves at a supermarket just to try and get by. Because at this point we had three, I think we might have had three staff. We were in an office. We'd been in an office at this point. Prior to that, we'd been in our homes. And I thought, I really need to keep this business going until I can sell it. That was, I was at that point. I'm like, I've done all I can do. The hardest part for me was that the brand and the sales were always increasing. We always had loyalty. People loved the products, but the cash flow was just non-existent. And we put so much of our money in. We had half a million dollars worth of credit card debt. Oh, wow. You don't want to hint that as an accountant, do you? Oh, no. Tell us the story. What happened? So I just thought, what have I got to lose? Like at this point, quite a lot. (laughs) So so I need to do something drastic or I'm going to lose everything. And I didn't want to happen was that I would lose everything and I couldn't afford to pay back my stepfather. At that point in time, I owed him, I don't know, it might have been a hundred grand or something. And I thought I'll be stuffed if I, I can't pay him that back. So I thought, I'm going to do a tutorial. I went home, did a tutorial in our rental property. I stuck my phone on the second story, like, window in this shittiest bathroom ever. Like, I was trying to get this phone to precariously not fall out the window because I needed the window open for a bit of lighting and try not to also let everyone see my 1940s-style bathroom I had going on. (laughs) So you didn't have that ring, you didn't have the ring with that beautiful lighting or anything like that. So you, no, yeah. no, no, no. There was no money for any rings. There was no, there was nothing. There was natural lighting coming through a crack in this sliding window. And so I'm like, please don't chirp birds, like dogs don't bark. So anyway, I did this filming. The lighting was horrendous. I think I said the word um about 50 times. It was just shocking. And so anyway, whatever it is, what it is. And (laughs) and we used that. And then I did a few more of those particular tutorials. And whilst it's not exactly right, but it's almost those few videos made the brand its first few million dollars. That's the way I look at it. Because that very week when we started using these particular tutorials where I was putting my face to the brand, showing people how to use them, almost just conducting a class on my phone, I guess. We also started using them for our Facebook ads and we really started pushing some messaging around guilt-free beauty. So we really changed our tagline around luxury without the guilt and things like that. So there's a couple of little things we tweaked. And I remember sitting at home, my mum was there at the time, and because I can see the sales on the back end of the website on my phone, I was still obviously minute to minute checking sales because at any moment I'm thinking, Christ, I'm going to go bankrupt here. (laughs) But I could pay all my suppliers, so I wasn't doing anything I shouldn't have been doing. Let's get that right. (laughs) But I was like, oh, God. And I started seeing the sales, like, going up, ridiculously up. And I said to my mum, 
there must be something wrong with this bloody website again. And she's like, why? And I said, well, because I think we've done like, it's saying we've done twice the amount of sales. And she's like, oh, God, really? And like, oh, yeah, I can't, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> but part of me was a little bit hopeful, but, yeah, I was a, a bit pessimistic at that point. And anyway, I went into the office and sure as hell, they were actually real orders. Wow. I said to the girls, are you sure there's no duplicate orders? Has the site been duplicating people's orders? And they're like, no, they're real orders, Bronnie. <laughs> like, oh, my God. And then ever since then, it's just doubled. Like the growth from that point in time for the next few years was just ridiculous. And I think it's because we were one of the first brands and also one of the only brands at that time that were actually doing real raw tutorials and real raw information for the customers. So there was nothing fluffy and too fabulous. There was no filters or bright lighting. And it was really raw, wholesome girl next door showing you what to do. You can achieve this as well. Getting on everybody's level and not making it too difficult to understand and not something that people look at and go, oh, I'm never going to look like that in a million years. So really just putting that human element to it. To this day, that still works really well. And it's great to see so many other brands have jumped on making things that much more realistic rather than fantasy almost. But that was really the turning point was really starting to talk about our story, showing my passion, I guess, through tutorials and through me speaking. And then even to the point, well, maybe two years ago now, we started a private Facebook group called the Adorners Exclusive Community. And I think there's nearly 8,000 women in there. And that group is so engaged. Again, I was like, why do we need a private community when yeah. we've got Facebook? Like, I don't get it. And the girls in marketing were like, because people feel more comfortable posting in that rather than the main feed. And I'm like, oh, look, I'll just give it a go. Like, if I can't constructively say why something won't work, I'll give it a go, even if I'm not quite sure about it. So I set it up, started doing lives like bath time waffles, they're called. So yes, I'm in my bath, I'm naked. You can't get any more raw interaction with a CEO than that. We're having a wine and I'm showing people how to do their skincare or talk about makeup or whatever it might be. And right at that point, COVID sort of hit. So it was a massive support for so many women that were isolated, like banging their heads against a wall, dealing with kids, all sorts of issues that everybody was dealing with. And it was a really nice, safe place for everybody to come together and collectively talk about something that mutually took their mind off things, but also made them feel good about things. And so that has been an extra layer in addition to the public things that we do through Facebook ads and Instagram and TikTok, which we're precariously <laughs> stubbing our toe at the moment. You should be on TikTok. You pretty much started the video content cosmetic journey. So yeah. you got to get yeah. on it. Yeah, well, I am. I'm still not convinced, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Can I ask with, in terms of your point of difference, uh, was it really about adding value to the customer, free value and saying, look, don't buy our products, but we'll teach you how to put makeup on, how to look after your skin. And because you were adding so much value to the consumer that yeah. you won trust, was that your point of difference? And if it is, how do you sell your point of difference? Adorn is a an amazing brand. Was that how you sold your point of difference or was there other angles that you took? 
Yeah, it, look, it's a difficult one because Adorn has so many layers to it, but definitely the focus for me was at the very beginning, I wanted the Chanel of the natural world and one that had no guilt using it, which I'll elaborate on in a moment what that means, and also a product that you or a brand that you would trust so much that no matter what product I bring out next, you just know that it's Australian-made, toxin-free, allergen-free, cruelty-free, it's vegan, and in most instances, it's palm oil-free. We've got refills, there's biodegradable packaging. Like You don't even need to look at the ingredients list. You don't even need to like look at it. You just know from being an adorner that a new product that comes on board, that's what it stands for. Because as a consumer myself of other things, hair care or whatever, one of the things that, and even when I was not in Adorn, of course, one of the things that I hated, Adorn's always been based on my likes and dislikes and frustrations. I've never had a marketing plan or a business plan or I've never had any plans. It's just purely been based on, and I'm not condoning that you don't need a plan. Some people love a plan. <laughs> but for me, this is time wasting. I just based it on my experiences and frustrations. And I can't stand having to go and read all of the stuff on the back of a product, food or whatever it is. It's like, God, can't you just deliver what you say you're delivering and stop changing the ingredients and stop changing the grams? And now, hang on, your conditioner's cruelty-free, but your bloody shampoo's not. Oh, so that was frustrating for me and really mixed messaging. And to me, I just never loyal to anything. And if you open any female or male bathroom cabinet, I would say that they have at least 10 different brands of something. Yeah, minimum. And it's the lack of trust and because they've tried something they don't like. Now, for me, it was about having all of the products accredited. It's not just me tooting the brand's horn. It's proof that these products stand for what I say they do. That was number one. Number two, there's consistency that all things are covered. It's not like one thing's vegan and something else isn't. It's all consistent. So again, you're not having that frustrating experience. And then it's also an ability to try the product before you commit to it. One of my biggest beefs, I guess, and things that I really can't stand is waste. I hate waste and I hate landfill. So that's the most important thing to me out of the brand. Yes, a quality product and all of the other accreditations are amazing, but my most passionate thing is reducing and minimising the impact on the environment right at the very beginning. Like, don't make it at the beginning to recycling it or letting it be a product that can be biodegradable. And what I mean by that is having a product that doesn't need outside boxes, for example. So that was one decision that we had to make was we won't be able to sell in stores at any point whilst we don't have outside boxes on our products because you can't stand a lipstick up or a liner up without a box. But I don't see the point in making that at the beginning. Like to me, that's a waste of the environment's resources right at the beginning and it's something that gets thrown away. So there was those elements that also attracted people that not only do they have a product they can trust, they're not frustrated by it, they can try it before they buy a full-size product that most likely ends up in landfill and about 70% of personal care does because they've had an allergy, don't like it, wrong colour, wrong smell, whatever the reason is. So that's why we introduced the sample program. So 
that customers had a fair experience before they wasted their money and wasted the environment's resources on something that they didn't like or wasn't suitable. And then they, of course, then can start the journey with buying the product, then they can buy refills, and they can also return the packaging back to us for us to recycle by sending it to a company called TerraCycle who turn it into things like outdoor furniture. That Um, is such a good idea. I love that. Yeah, it's an end-to-end process and that takes the guilt out of using a luxury brand because there's always a bit of a, oh, I've just spent this money on myself and on. Oh, but it takes that guilt away. And I think all of those different layers of what gave us that point of difference. Did we reinvent the wheel? No, we created a, another a makeup brand, but one that stands for so many things, so many layers that it resonates with so many different people on different levels. And of course, a quality product that people do continue to come back and rebuy. What I wanted to just ask finally was about the future. You've spoken about how you've built the business, the challenges. And I just want to talk about, obviously, you're an industry that's been around for a long, long time. And and industry's changing all the time. And the likes of Uber have come in and so on. What do you see the future of Adorn? And what are your plans in the upcoming years? First and foremost, because we've got such a ridiculously loyal customer base, like I really think we are up there with loyalty, that we're really focusing on getting our loyalty program. There's a lot of loyalty programs around, but really having one that really supports the customers and the way they obviously promote us, because that's really, in essence, what they do. If anyone ever looked in the group, they would see the photos, the videos, the amount of content our customers make for us is just unbelievable. So really looking at a genuine way of rewarding our customers, that's the initial side of it. The next couple of stages for me would be looking at overseas markets, because we really are, whilst we do dispatch worldwide from Australia. Our focus has been Australia. So looking at maybe, you know, distribution points, say in England or Europe or somewhere where we can make it a little bit more affordable from a postage perspective, because that's quite prohibitive in people from overseas buying our products. The postage is just so expensive. So looking at some ways around expanding overseas. And I do have a really innovative idea around a retail concept store that I would love to put in like a Chadston or somewhere in the city, somewhere where there's you know a lot of foot traffic, really experiential store, which I can't go into too much details because I don't want someone stealing my no, idea. No, definitely not. Um, so that's already been sort of mapped out and kind of ready to go. But I guess in a few years' time, I'd almost be doing this for close to 15 to 20 years. So I am looking at maybe over the next sort of three to five years to possibly bring in somebody with that expertise to sort of assist with those areas. Because, you know, you need to also appreciate where your expertise lies, but also understand where it doesn't and possibly bring in people that can assist those areas. And for me, we're at a point where do I take another 10 years to get where I want? Or do I look at maybe bringing someone on who's got that huge expertise, contacts in that area that could expedite that in, say, two to three years. And so that's kind of what I'm toying with at the moment is looking at maybe bringing in investor or a partner to some capacity to help 
move those things that I want done a little bit quicker. And I'm getting a bit older too. Like when I was in my 20s and 30s, the thought of flying around the world and setting a dawn up worldwide was so exciting. Now I would, no, I don't want to do that. (laughs) You know, the thought of jumping on a plane every other week really doesn't interest me. I want to focus on my family and you just, your priorities change, don't they, as you get older. Yeah. And well, watch this space. A lot of exciting things coming up. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the show. There was amazing takeaways, being brave, understanding cash flow, making sure you learn about your website. There were just so many takeaways for any young business that's starting out to build an e-commerce site or any e-commerce business. I, I think there's a lot of insights that we can take away from that. And I just want to say thank you for your honesty and your stories. And I wish Dawn and Bryony all the success. Thank you for joining me on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.